HDC, want to say good morning to you. You know, it's kind of like a friendship that we share that uh, you, you ever had those friends and you're away for a long time and you see them after a, a good long season and it's like you never left. And so we are so thankful for you. You're so gracious, always have been. It's a pleasure to be with you again today. I have uh, some things from the Word of God to share with you today in our series out of First Peter. But the question on, on everybody's mind today, obviously, is who's going to win the Super Bowl? And so I thought I would uh, solve that for you, that little dilemma that you have today. Um, I'm thinking that your opinion, my opinion, our opinion should not just be based on the jersey we're wearing. You guys walking in today celebrating your favorite team. Um, and since the Bible is always, always our final word on faith and practice, why not look for the answer to that question in the scriptures? And so uh, once again this year, I, I looked into the Bible and it turns out it actually does settle the question regarding the outcome of the big game today. Uh, just in time for you, I know. I, see, I'm, I don't tell you this so you could be sinfully proud that you know more than your friends, but just in a godly kind of in-your-face way, you might just drop this later. Uh, but I discovered as I looked into the scriptures that the plural form of the word chiefs shows up 22 times in the scripture. But the word 49 only shows up once. And there are only two books in the Bible that have at least 49 chapters and no book in the Bible averages 49 verses per chapter. So I'm thinking the Chiefs have the advantage today. They may actually be God's pick. But hold your applause, please. Because we cannot ever ignore the prophecies about Christ's return. And when you look into the Old Testament prophet Daniel's words, he talks about the seven sevens, which if you do the math, totals 49. All that to say, I'm thinking, this is the bottom line. The Chiefs would win the Super Bowl except that Jesus is going to return at the end of the second quarter and save us all from the halftime show. <laughs> all right, that's great. Now, if you're an Usher fan, you don't have to email me or anything like that. We're good, we're good, right? I want to welcome uh, also our good friends out in Apple Valley and Asperia. Thanks for joining us. Did you see that, who was it, Drake bet a million dollars? On, on the Super Bowl? Dude should have talked to me first, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Series is Exiles, is out of First Peter, we'll be in chapter two today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn and join me there. But this letter was originally a letter written to a group of first century believers who were finding life to be incredibly difficult. Cultural resistance to the faith had picked up speed, and as history bears out, circumstances 
continued to deteriorate after Peter wrote this letter to the point where many were killed simply because they claimed to follow Jesus. And although persecution of Christians is common around the world today, most of us in this part of the world do not fear for our lives yet. Still, we see the tide of resistance beginning to rise to the point where even American believers are wondering if we will survive the looming threats in our future, both cultural and criminal. For us, this letter actually may not just be good theological information, but it may actually at some point offer us very practical advice on how to deal with what these believers were dealing with a couple of thousand years ago. One of the longest running TV shows in American television history is the show Survivor. Some of you still get all geeked up about that show. And all of us, I would imagine, have encountered a season or two through the many years it's uh, been broadcast. But it's a story about a group of people who leave their ordinary lives and are thrown into the middle of a tropical, often, often harsh jungle setting. And their challenge is to survive on their own. They figure it won't be easy before they signed that release form. But they knew there would be great reward for those who were successful. When I read First Peter, I'm thinking, that's kind of us. I often say, and it's flippantly said when I do, as people are walking away or leaving, I might yell after them, be careful, it's a jungle out there. And although for me that's just a way to maybe say goodbye, it is certainly true about the world we live in. It is a jungle out there. In fact, it's a crazy jungle. So let me explain. In fact, I want to read a little bit to you as we begin today, a little bit about the Lord of the jungle and jungle lore, if I might. A long time ago, the jungle was actually a fabulous place to live. The one who created it often visited, enjoying the appreciation of everyone who called it home. The natives he placed there were few, but friendly. They completely cooperated with their jungle lord, fulfilling all of his managerial and maintenance instructions. But then a crisis occurred. The one he had appointed as the tribal leader made a very short-sighted and foolish mistake. And as a result, a terminal virus took root in their jungle home. It infected everyone and affected everything to the point where every native who came after that was even born with the virus. As the population grew, so did the effects of the disease. More and more people 
were dying every day. The owner always knew it would be up to him to save those people from absolute and permanent annihilation. He knew the antidote, but he also knew he couldn't just send it to them. He would have to take it to them. A mission like that would be impossible for anyone else. The virus had mutated to the point where the natives themselves were not even interested in being cured. The toxins had caused some kind of mind-altering blindness to their own terminal condition. In fact, they had been so blinded by the virus that they actually killed the owner upon his arrival and rejected his antidote, their only hope for survival. But then there was an interesting twist to the story. Little did the natives know that by killing the owner, they actually helped cause the antidote to take effect. Because it was precisely his execution that activated the components of the antidote itself, bringing a sense of healing to all who would receive it. And it was then that the owner's overall strategy finally began to unfold. He would choose a certain group of people to be inoculated, right there in the heart of the jungle, and then each of them would offer the antidote to the people around them who were still blindly moving toward their own demise. As a result of that plan, many were saved. Others continue to respond even to this day, accepting the life-giving serum which brings us, which brings us to you my Christian jungle-dwelling friends. Each of us have also now been recruited to continue this extremely important mission. You and I are now partners in spreading the good news about this antidote and the salvation it provides. And we were chosen for this. Like the Lord of the jungle, we've been rejected by the world. But God has made us into a spiritual juggernaut, fashioned us into what he calls some type of spiritual skyscraper, smack dab in the heart of this dying jungle. Well, the apostle Peter writes more eloquently, I know, the same story. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, my assignment today is to take us down through verse 10. But we read in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never ever, ever be put to shame. As you come to him, you came to him, right? Most of you at least. Those who have not will actually have that opportunity in a few minutes, so hang on. 
I came to Jesus in 1962, April the 7th. I remember kneeling in front of a, a green couch. It's amazing the details you remember about events like that. My father answered my questions, and as a young boy, I came to Jesus. I don't know when you came to Jesus. But those who are believers in Christ, Peter says, actually came to him. And the, the term he used is not all that complicated. It simply refers to leaving one place and actually entering into another. We didn't just come to Jesus, we actually went into Jesus. In fact, three times in the same letter, Peter refers to that process as becoming, by faith, in Christ. Now that's familiar to you perhaps because if you've read Paul's letters, he refers to being in Christ 80 times. That's eight zero. And so it's something the Holy Spirit does not want any of us to miss. When we come to Jesus, we enter into him. We enter into his church. And as Peter describes his church, it's a spiritual building that he's putting up right in the middle of this jungle world that we live in. And he continues to build it to this day. Anyone who has come into this building is now in Christ. I wanna give you four thoughts that I see in this passage and I'm going to compare two qualities about Jesus. One, that he is very special, and the other, that he is very specific. Number one, you can fill in some blanks. Jesus is building something as specific as it is special. As specific as it is special. Now, in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the principal stone a builder used. It was usually placed at the corner of the structure. Are you ready for this? That's why they called it the cornerstone. The cornerstone was one of the largest. It was certainly the most dependable, the most solid. And it was also the most carefully selected of any stone in the entire building because after the cornerstone is placed, every other stone must align with it. Once it is set, it becomes the basis for which every decision will be made in the rest of the construction process. Every other stone has to follow the lines, the dimensions of the cornerstone. That's why the cornerstone needed to be perfect. It needed to be just right. If it was even a little off, then the building would not come together as the builder had hoped. And so after this perfect cornerstone was found, all the other stones needed to be set according to the directional dimensions of the cornerstone. If they weren't, the future integrity of the building would be compromised. If the building was not built according to code, they were in trouble. Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And that all of us depend on him for everything. 
Now, why are there today over 65,000 different iterations of Christianity in the world? Just before he left, just before he was crucified and resurrected and left to go back to the right hand of the Father, Jesus prayed to the Father, oh God, oh Lord, oh Father, that they, that you and I would be one just like Jesus and the Father are one. Why is the church not O-N-E-1 today? Because many of the stones are out of alignment with the cornerstone, that's why. Why do local churches split in half? Because some of the local stones are out of alignment with the cornerstone. That's why. Why do so many Christians struggle so much in their personal lives? Because their personal choices are out of alignment with the cornerstone. See, that's what I mean when I say specific. The Bible becomes our architectural blueprints. And our job as living stones are to position ourselves in alignment with Jesus Christ. You and I are not code enforcement officers. <laughs> we walk around in the process of construction and say, nope, I don't like that, gotta change that. We don't get to decide what's appropriate. You guys, we're just building materials. Called on to live our lives in alignment with the cornerstone. That's why our opinion should always line up with Jesus' opinion. You know, I joke about, you know, God's opinion about the Super Bowl. I don't really care who you're voting for, cheering for, rooting for. But when it comes to important issues, the first question we always ask is, what does Jesus think? There's so much going on in the world around us that is so confusing. It's hard to know what to do. It's hard to know what to think. And that's why in the process of discovery, the first question we ask, what is Jesus' opinion on that? For example, if, if two people wanna be married and they happen to be of the same gender, I mean, is that such a big deal? I mean, really, is that a big deal? Well, the question we should ask is not, is it a big deal to us? The question we ask is, what did the cornerstone think about that? He actually had some very specific instructions. And we are bound to align with his opinion. What if a woman decides to abort her baby? Is that such a big deal? Well, what did Jesus say about that? What does the Bible say? What is the biblical truth on that particular issue? And it actually has some very specific ideas and instructions about what our opinions need to be. And our culture argues with those opinions. I mean, they just do, they just push back. They don't like it. That's why the Apostle Paul right in the Corinthians said, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to who? The cornerstone. That's who. 
Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. And if our opinions are different, watch what happens. When the stones that come after the cornerstone begin to align themselves in the wrong directions, the integrity, the future integrity, the future stability of that building is compromised. And I don't know, you know, we're talking about the church, the big C church here. But we could be talking about your family, bro. We could be talking about your small group, sister. We could be talking about anything. Church, our decisions, if you're filling in blanks, also need to line up with how Jesus challenged us. That's why Paul, in writing the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 17, he said, whatever you do, whether you talk about it or, or if you're actually doing something, in word or deed, you got to do it all in the name of the cornerstone. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks that we actually have direction here. And that's important because ungodly decisions lead to instability. Fill in another blank. The purpose we wake up with every day must align with the call that Jesus has given all of us. You know, I, taught, I call it for those of you who are old enough to remember Ricky Ricardo. It's a Ricky Ricardo school of theology. I told you, I told you, I told you. God has given us one thing. Jesus, actually, he's given the church not just HCC, but all believers everywhere. One thing to do between his advents. One thing. That's his purpose for the world, the redemptive plan in history. He wants us all to be a part of. We're all partners in the gospel. That's why the purpose we wake up with every day has got to align with that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill the cornerstone's good purpose. What, I, what, what, you want, what am I going to do today? First question, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus said he would actually build his church. He's just going to build his church. In fact, when he said that in Matthew chapter 16, he was speaking to Peter face to face. Same guy that wrote this letter. He said, I'm going to build my church. And what did he say in that conversation what happened? If the stones, the future stones align with the cornerstone, he said, the gates of Hades are coming down. the entrenchments of the enemy will be dismantled. If we just what? Recognize that Jesus is not just special, but he's very specific. Number two, the world wants to embrace how special Jesus is, but ignore how specific he is. I mean, is that not the case? Look at verse seven, now to you who believe this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
Okay, my first takeaway from that section is that disobedience doesn't just lead to instability, it leads to stumbling. The world stumbles over the cornerstone. I don't know if you found the same thing to be true that I found to be true, this is what I found to be true. People generally have a very positive attitude about Jesus. They have a very positive opinion about Jesus until they find out what he said. They think he's special. They don't realize how specific he is. And they stumble. When they find out, they stumble. Now we should always expect that there's gonna be practical benefit to making a good decision. That's what I'm just trying to process logically. When you make a good decision, there's going to be a good benefit to that. Your life is going to be better. It might not be easier, but it's going to be better. In the long run, you're gonna be thankful you made that decision because it was a solid decision, it was a good decision. Conversely, if you make a stupid decision, you can expect life to become more difficult and worse. <laughs> it might be better in the short term, but in the long term, what happens to the structure? It starts to wobble. So you just expect that. It's the old law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. And it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow, but eventually watch what happens. You get back what you put in. Stupid decision, bad results. It's like time just vets every decision we make. And that's why we say things like, time will tell. Because it, it just does. Time is life's greatest judge as to whether or not a decision was solid or whether it was foolish. Paul wrote the Corinthians again, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will reap generously. And then when he wrote the Galatians in Galatians 6, 8, he said, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh reaps destruction and whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. We all agree that the world is just nuts. And it's full of all these destructive elements that are all around us. Seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Every day we wake up and we hear something and we say, yikes, it's even weirder today than it was yesterday. I mean, did God just walk away from planet Earth and, and did he just throw up his hands and say, y'all made your bed, just go lie in it. But watch this, according to the law of the harvest, Nothing ever just happens in a vacuum. There are actually very good reasons as to why we're living in the state we're living. And I don't mean California, although that applies as well. Let me give you an example. 1962, ironically, the same year I received Christ. I don't think there's a correlation. But anyway, in 1962, the United States Supreme Court decided it would be a really good decision to not remind children that there's a higher power out there. And so they took prayer out of the public school. Now, some people thought that was a horrible decision. 
And then many other people thought it was a really good decision. That was 65 years ago. See, time vets everything. So now we don't even have to wonder if it's a good decision or a bad decision. All we have to do is look at the data. Since 1962, violent crime has increased sixfold. Single mother births have increased fivefold. The teenage suicide, suicide rate has tripled. SAT scores have dropped by an average of 80 points. And I could go on and on and on. Which being interpreted means that was a really stupid decision. But that's what happens when you want to embrace how special Jesus is and ignore how specific Jesus is. And none of this is a surprise. It's the law of the harvest. In fact, Billy Graham put it this way years ago. He's with the Lord now. But I remember, I remember actually hearing him say this live and in person. If God doesn't judge America for our sin, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. End of quote. Foolish decisions lead to instability and stumbling. Number three, Jesus to us is so special that we enthusiastically pursue his specificity. Now that's a lot of syllables, I'm sorry, but it's on screen, can't spell it. I mean, when we as God's people hear how specific he is, it's not a problem for us. We don't stumble over that. We embrace it. He saved us. Why would we not embrace it? And that's what Peter says now in verse 9. But you, you know, we talk about the world that just stumbles over the cornerstone, <laughs> but not us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And once you were, you were not a people, but that day's past. Because now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know what bothers me the most about Christians, and I'm one too, so bothers me about myself. I always like to point my finger at, at other people. See, as long as I throw the attention somewhere else, maybe they won't look at me. If I just elevate their mistakes, nobody will notice that I've made my own mistakes. On a national level, we like to point the finger at our political enemies, right? And all these crazy people that make our lives so difficult. Until I read the beginning of verse nine and the first two words. But you. It's not just the Supreme Court that made a stupid decision that cut God out of a student's typical day. Our world is what it is today because Christians make poor decisions to cut God out of their and their families' lives every day. 
And I've said this many times, it's one of my mercerisms maybe. Jesus never expects anybody to act like a Christian. Never. Until they become one. And then the expectations change. It's like your friends, maybe your neighbors, maybe your relatives, maybe you're gonna watch the game with them today. And they're not believers. God doesn't expect them to act like Christians. But you. See. It's a whole another ball game now. Once we are Christians, the expectations are different. Never ever forget the but you in verse nine. See, remember how verse five said that we're living stones, you know, our stone ship to create a new word. Our stone ship is characterized as being living. And that, that might sound great because we have been made alive in Christ. And I, I believe that's, that's what Peter's referring to. We, we now have been made alive because we are, we are a people who have come come to Christ. Cheryl and I have a lot of stonework, different places in our house. In our fireplace, there are stones. Outside in our back patio, there's some stones that were set into place at our house. And you know what? We left home this morning to come here and be with you. When we get back, I fully expect those stones are still going to be there in the exact same position as to when I left. Why? Because they're dead. Um, It's not like anybody killed them. It's just that they aren't alive. See, that's the problem with living stones. They can kind of move around. This is a challenge today, you guys. It doesn't just happen when we come to Christ. And we give our hearts to Jesus, see? And we say we want to live our lives to glorify Jesus. We have to make this decision every single day, maybe multiple times a day, to make sure that our opinions and our decisions and our purpose aligns with the cornerstone because we're living. It's kind of like when the Apostle Paul said we're living sacrifices in Romans 12.1. See, a sacrifice is supposed to be dead. You take the animal, you kill the animal, you put the animal on the altar, and that's the sacrifice, a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And then Paul comes along and says, we're kind of like that, only we're living sacrifices. And the problem with a living sacrifice is that we can crawl off the altar. If the heat gets a little too high, we can check out and say, this is too much, I'm gonna change my views. This is too much pressure. I'm going to conform to the culture. I used to believe this, but now I'm going to change and believe that. Because the cornerstone changed their mind? No. See, we can never stumble over the fact that the world stumbles over Jesus. Number four, building a life on anything but Jesus is stupid. It's just stupid. I said foolish because that's more biblical. 
You can find that word in the Bible. <laughs> but it's just dumb. To realize what Jesus calls us to and decide to do something else is just dumb. And that's true personally, it's true collectively. If you ignore the stability, creating strength of the cornerstone, it will create dysfunction in your personal life, in your family, and everywhere you go, even in the collective people of God. Peter actually stood up in Acts chapter four. This is what he said, and he's preaching to the Jewish leaders. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed, that I have been transformed, and this guy has been physically healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You see, the Jewish aristocracy of the first century had examined Jesus and decided they didn't want him to be their Messiah. And Peter is reminding them, there ain't another Messiah coming, bros. Salvation is found in nobody else. You, pick, you are saved by Jesus or you, or you will not be saved. But they didn't want him. And not because he didn't fit Old Testament prophecy, their own scriptures. It's not that Jesus didn't line up perfectly with what their scriptures said the Messiah would be. They just didn't want him. If he wasn't gonna dismantle the Roman regime, they didn't want him. If they didn't play the game the way they wanted the game played, they didn't want him. And then on top of that, he challenged their traditions. He called them. They're the spiritual leaders of the people. He called them to repentance. The nerve. They did not want a Messiah who didn't condone the way they conducted their business. He got in their way, and they got rid of him. That's still the way it is today. Any Jesus who doesn't allow everybody to do whatever they want to, it's not very popular Jesus. But you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Notice how at the end of this little section we're looking at today, you and I are consistently mentioned as part of the greater collective. See, I hear the word exile and I think about somebody who's exiled on a deserted island to survive all by themselves. You know, we play the game. What would you like to have if you were exiled? on a deserted island. And we think about being alone, but we're not alone. Peter says we're not alone, you're never alone. We might feel like we're alone. There are times when our lonely emotions take over and we are down and discouraged, maybe even depressed, because we feel like we're all by ourselves. And Peter says, but you're not. Everybody in this room, all of these rooms today, look to the people on your right. Just go ahead, turn and look at them. Now turn and look to the people on your left. Now turn around and look at the people behind you. Literally, come on, if you have to stand up, stand up. Look at these people. We're not alone. Christianity is always about the collective. 
He says it three different ways. We're a chosen people, that's plural. We're not a variety of different little people silos. We are one people. We're also a royal priesthood, that's also plural. Never considered yourself a priest. Some of you come out of a Roman tradition and you're thinking, yikes. But this is not a reference to that. This is a reference to the Old Testament priesthood. That might still cause you to say yikes. But when you look at the Old Testament priesthood, they had three basic responsibilities. Number one, they went to God directly. They were granted access to God. Number two, they represented God to their, their people. They were a representative of God. And number three, they ushered people into God's presence. That's what priests did in the Old Testament. And those three reasons are exactly why God calls us a royal priesthood. There were 20 requirements in the Old Testament to be a priest. You had to fulfill 20 different requirements. Leviticus 21 provides an extremely narrow grid for eligibility. But regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of how well-educated you are or not, or regardless of what you've learned about the Bible or have, You've been given direct access to God. You have the responsibility of representing him well to your people. And you're called on to usher people into his presence. To lead other people to Christ. If you have come to him, you are part of this royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. In the New Testament, God's people are a priesthood. We're one priesthood. One people, one priesthood. Look at number three, we're also a holy nation. And that's plural. And the word there is ethnos. And I don't even have to tell you what word we get out of the word Greek word ethnos. Our identity as a Jesus follower is now more important than any human ethnicity. Our new race transcends any earthly categories. Holy is the translation. Hagion is the Greek word and it means different from the rest. Set apart. In other words, Peter says we identify differently now. Paul picked up that theme in Galatians 3. Now we're not talking about Jews and Gentiles or slaves or, or free men, nor are we talking about male and female. We are all one in Christ. We are one nation among the nations. Geopolitical boundaries don't divide us. Our identity is no longer primarily framed by all these other characteristics our DNA divides us in terms of sexuality and ethnic heritage. The world has always followed the lines of those silos. In recent generations, the entire planet has become incredibly tribalized. But in Christ, see, when we came to him, we were reverse engineered we have been given a new spiritual DNA and we now form one 
ethnos. See, depending on your, your birth DNA in this life, you'll always be male or female. You'll always be Anglo or Asian or black or Hispanic or whatever. Depending on your country of origin, you'll always be American or Canadian or Mexican or Italian or German or whatever. But if you have come to him, all of those things pale in comparison to this very unique and distinct characteristic. And should you be asked this week, who exactly are you? Or maybe that question will be framed this way. How do you identify? Try responding this way. I am in Christ. He redeemed me out of all this darkness to walk in the light of his truth. But all of that for one reason to declare his praises to the people he has supernaturally and strategically placed on the front row of my life. And I am inviting you to experience the mercy that he showed me and stand with me on the right side of history. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we are so glad that you have called us to yourself. You have chosen us. We are elect, but we are exiled here. And we have opinions, and we have decisions to make, and we have a purpose to fulfill. But they all draw their lines from Jesus, only Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by God's grace this week will give us all opportunities to stand in his corner, no pun intended. And Father, for those that don't know you today, would you open their spiritual lives? Would you make them alive, quicken their spirit? And would they come to you today? And if you don't know Christ, I told you, I told you, I told you, I'd give you this opportunity. Three things, admit, believe, choose. Admit that you're a sinner. Just gotta, just gotta humble yourself and say, yeah, I can't do this anymore this way. It ain't working. Believe Jesus was sent to save you and no other savior's coming and choose to place your life in his very capable hands and trust him for your eternity and trust him for your this afternoon. He will sustain you in this life and he will bring you to heaven when you leave this earth. Admit it, believe it, but choose it to follow Christ in Jesus' name. All God's children said, Amen. Have a great day.